0: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast
2: everywhere.
3: From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. And Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. On today's show, we'll welcome John Tupi from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to help us dive into the world of gopher frogs, a unique and fascinating species found right here in Mississippi. These small amphibians, known for the distinctive call that sounds like a deep snore, are native to the longleaf pine forests and flatwoods of the southern U.S. Today, we'll talk about these frogs and others found around Mississippi, Dr. Major's on the line ready for pet questions, and Libby always likes to hear your recent encounters with nature. You can email animals at mpbonline.org. And if you miss Creature Comforts Thursday mornings, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning, Libby. I always like to start out with you by hearing uh, what uh, you've been seeing in your yard lately. And as we were chatting before we came on the air, seems like you're getting a lot of uh, hummingbird sightings from folks you know.
4: Yes, hummingbirds. And, you know, I think I mentioned... Last week that I, I haven't seen perulas or prothonotaries or my hummingbirds yet, and so I had listeners get in touch about all of those, and it's it's been kind of fun to... Listen, people on the coast, of course, were already saying, yeah, they're here, they're here. And so um, all the three species that I've been waiting for, i kind of tracked moving my way. And uh, the uh, Judy and Richard uh, texted this morning that they had a hummingbird yesterday. And they're a little bit north of me. So I've got to hopefully – and uh, my red buckeye is – in full bloom right now, all around the house, and it doesn't seem to have been bothered by the um, this hard freeze we got a few days ago. I am already mourning my mulberries because I had just a bumper crop of mulberries on two trees, and all set for my Oreos and uh, you know everything else loves them. The uh, the tanagers particularly too, and um, I already had cedar wax wings coming into the yard like they'll just kind of check the mulberry tree and they were here during the cold weather too i had some they were eating a few berries off of um, some other plants but it looks like the mulberries are just gone mm. the leaves and the fruit are, are both falling off so i hope i don't lose the whole tree but that that's not going to be good for my bird watching in the spring but we'll 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 live through it and it might be that I need to learn to feed them fruit if I don't get my own fruit although I've been you know talking about that's the thing to do is to grow the tree right mm-hmm. not try to supplement but um I've been thwarted a little bit with that this year but I did hear and Merlin caught it for me I've gotten kind of in a habit of um, sitting on the porch as soon as I wake up and listening and sometimes I'll play the Merlin recording and Merlin immediately picked up a Perula song and so not what I've seen in the yard but what I've heard this week has been encouraging so I did have a Perula right before that cold weather I don't know if he kept moving north or not but They've been at the house, so I'm excited about it. And I'm glad to hear about um, gopher frogs more today. We were talking about kind of my whole career at the museum was paralleling information about the gopher frogs. Mm. And the the museum has been involved through the years, I guess, gosh, for the last 40 years, in um, a lot of what's gone on with the gopher frogs. And John's— been right there in the middle of it so i've heard of his discoveries when i haven't gotten to talk to him in person
3: we got an email from steve from hattiesburg with a picture of a frog and you and our guest john Toopy were looking at it before we came on the air did you discern anything uh, that maybe mm-hmm. what kind of frog it was
0: uh well just looking at it uh, I'd, I'd guess that it's a bronze frog often called a, a green frog um with the caveat that I don't know where it's from in Mississippi, um, so that that's my best guess with the the picture. Um, but yeah, that's a fairly larger frog uh, out of the true frogs, and um, uh, it, it their call is kind of like a, a banjo twang, uh, if if that makes sense.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, Doctor Major joins us from his clinic in Jackson, as he does each week. Uh, Doctor Major, good morning. It's National Puppy Day. Uh, could you remind us about some things people should think about when they're considering getting a puppy?
1: Well, I always say to do research first and know what, you know, in, in general, what, what you're getting. Certainly there are plenty of puppies at the different shelters. Uh, and uh, just kind of judge by what you're able to handle. You don't want to, if you're in a small apartment or something like that, you may not want to get a larger dog they're all varieties and just do some research and know what you're what kind of what you're getting um, one of the first things you need to do whenever you get a puppy is take it to your vet and have them give it physical and just to check up and see if there are any problems or if there are any parasites and at six weeks we usually start a vaccination so that's important so choice of food Good quality puppy food is always uh, important, and start the puppy off without getting hooked on people food if you can. So that's some things that you need to do, but always look at eyes, ears, nose, teeth, um, what kind of stool or bowel movements the puppy's having. These are things that are very important.
3: Uh, a couple things. Then, so first of all, too, if you can get some time with the puppy and your family, you want to make sure there's a you know that there's a fit there. But then, uh, excuse me. Once somebody gets a puppy, what about training? Is it important to kind of jump on various types of training almost from the get go?
1: Certainly, one of the things that you really are interested in most people would be obviously is house training, um, getting the dog used to. Uh, going uh, to the bathroom, if you will, wherever you intend for them to. A lot of people use puppy pads or pee pads. Uh, some dogs adapt to that quite well. Uh, and certainly uh, being consistent if you can. Uh, we've talked about crate training before, uh, actually uh, having puppy used to going into a kennel. Uh, and first thing in the morning, obviously, take the puppy out, and when you feed, usually a puppy will be ready to uh, defecate or urinate within a, just uh, 10 to 15 minutes of the time it's eaten, and maybe sooner than that. That's very important. As far as uh, immediacy, uh, a leash, if you're going to use a harness, that's fine, but uh, they need to get adapted to that as soon as possible, uh, and puppies, if uh, they're treat oriented, they'll learn to sit, stay, um, sort of thing. And then you can go on to more advanced uh, training.
3: And then uh, finally, what about the uh, first vet visit? How soon was that? And what are some of the early things that you do when you see a new puppy in your clinic?
1: Right. And this is what I just mentioned you know, you need to have a thorough physical, which involves uh, taking a stool sample checking for intestinal parasites, listening to the heart, lungs, uh, checking the mouth, checking the teeth, checking the ears, just a general checkup. And a lot of times we don't uh, have control over when we get the puppy, but as I mentioned, at six weeks we like to start uh, vaccinations. There's some controversy of how many vaccinations. We tend to like to get uh, four, about three weeks apart. Uh, Certainly three uh, vaccinations would be better than Uh, not getting the complete complement. We do see dogs that have had one vaccination, for example. Uh, A lot of times people forget, and then we wind up having to treat for parvovirus or some other disease. So I'd say as soon as you get your puppy, you really need to get in. And the same thing would be true of a kitten. Get in to see your vet, have a thorough physical, and start vaccinations.
3: Right. And so establish that uh, relationship early and then your vet will be your partner in raising your pet, you know, for, for the rest of the time that you have them.
1: Exactly. Yes.
3: Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. If you want to join our conversation this morning with question or comment, you can always email the show animals at mpbonline.org. Our guest this hour is John Toopey from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. John, thanks for being on the air with us. If you would tell us a little bit about your work at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, what's kind of a typical day like for you maybe?
0: Sure. Yeah, I'm a biologist. Um, I'm stationed at the Ecological Services Field Office in Jackson. Um, we're tasked with, uh, we're tasked with administering the Endangered Species Act, and uh, there's there's a lot of things that are in the Endangered Species Act. Specifically, what I'm working on right now is the listing and recovery and monitoring of. Uh, three federally listed species found in Mississippi um, the first uh, there's there's three uh, the black pine snake the gopher tortoise and the dusky gopher frog. Um, All three of those are found in uh, historically longleaf pine forests uh, in the uh, southern part or the coastal plain of Mississippi. Um, Gopher tortoises are found elsewhere uh, throughout the Southeast and black pine snakes are found. uh, Historically, they were found in uh, Southeast Louisiana right now. We just know of uh, them found in South Mississippi and Southwestern Alabama um, so, um, usually what I'm doing is I'm working on projects or programs to try and monitor these species where they are currently and work with partners or, uh, find good, uh, programs that will help contribute to the recovery of these listed species. Um, and it's, there's really no, um, you know, one way to do it. Uh, you know, you, you have to work with your, with, with whatever partners, um, uh, Actually, have the the species on their properties. A lot of times, these are public lands, like the forest, the U.S. Forest Service, uh, national forests, um, uh, state wildlife management areas, uh, and and also conservation properties like held by the the Nature Conservancy. Um, so, we're constantly uh, looking for ways to improve the status of these species, increase their uh, their viability and resiliency. Um, And and we're also always constantly trying to find out more about these species because they're relatively secretive, uh, hard to find in the field, hard to track, hard to um, discern anything about their life histories or um, ecology. So um, we partner with researchers at universities um, or or other folks that that want to investigate. Uh, specific aspects of these species, and and we try and use that information to inform management um, or other conservation actions uh, that again will increase that'll help that baseline and, and increase their resilience.
3: Um, so you think w- what what from your early life and and background do you think maybe uh, helped you prepare for your career, but also maybe sort of pointed you in the direction of of
0: being a biologist? Um, I you know from a very young age I've always been. I'm in love with the outdoors and animals. Um, I was always that kid that was trying to catch lizards or, um, uh, you know, find frogs. And, and when my parents let me, I would keep them as pets. Um, but <clears throat> that really just was an innate fascination from a very young age. And in college, when I was an undergraduate, I found out that you could. Act, there were actually careers um, that you could, uh, you know, maybe – follow to to still work outdoors or with animals and um and so i think that just having that fascination and also being exposed at a young age to the outdoors and animals and and you know having meeting folks that were passionate about those things was was just key to me kind of growing and developing and and fostering that that interest
3: so we're going to be talking today about the dusky gopher frog. Um, tell us a little bit about the, the history of of the frog.
0: Yeah, so the dusky gopher frog um, historically was only found uh, in Alabama, Mississippi, and southeastern Louisiana, um, and in Alabama, only in southwestern Alabama, west of the, the Mobile and Tong Bigby Rivers, so a pretty narrow range, and they once were thought to be A subspecies of the crawfish frog, or even the eastern gopher frog species, which are found um, north and to the east of the dusky gopher frog range, um, respectively. And so um, there was a kind of a lag in information uh, going through, I would say, the 1960s, the 1970s, and even the early 80s, where there They just hadn't been um, found in South Mississippi for that long. And so amateur herpetologist, um, specifically Glenn Johnson, uh, started looking in South Mississippi around where he was working in the DeSoto National Forest and found a couple places, heard them calling from these places, which, you know, was several decades uh, removed from the last time they were actually observed in Mississippi. And so... That prompted some research from some local universities, um, and they started monitoring these frogs in the early '90s and found that they were uh, they were only they were constrained to this single pond. They started kind of disappearing t- from all the local areas that Glenn had been listening from, and they stayed at this one single pond, uh, aptly named Glenn's Pond. And um, the researchers found that their population was declining rapidly. Um, that prompted the U.S. Fish and Wildlife to step in and list the species as endangered in 2001, um, and therefore, you know, further federal actions uh, were were then uh, started. Um, some one of the aspects of the gopher frog that makes them very vulnerable to local extinction is their their breeding areas, their temporary or ephemeral ponds. And these ponds are dependent on rain and rain only. And so, you know, seasonally, if there's enough rain to fill those ponds and can keep them maintained after the frogs deposit their eggs and allow those tadpoles to grow and develop to metamorphosis, then there can be actual frog recruitment into that population that year. What we were finding at Glenn's Pond was that pond was drying up way too early for those tadpoles to make it to metamorphosis. And so... Um, a researcher um, stepped in and started extracting some of those eggs and hatching them and releasing them into large cattle tanks, about 500-gallon cattle tanks. And that buffered against the pond drying and allowed some recruitment every year to then occur at those ponds. So they were raised to metamorphosis in those tanks, and then those frogs were released back into those ponds so that in hopes that, you know, when those hydro periods were sufficient, they could then sustain themselves. What we found, unfortunately, was there was a 10-year drought and there was no natural recruitment at Glen's Pond. And and so those tanks uh, effectively saved that population.
4: I want to explain one term that I've explained on here before. It's the strange use that we biologists use of the word recruitment. Oh, yeah. they, they weren't going out finding any more frogs. <laughs> to, to, when, a, when a population recruits, it... Does it the old-fashioned way? They have babies, so they had to mate and raise babies, and that's how you bring recruitment to the population. And I don't know why we always do that, but Recruit, biologists yeah. have used that word. It's it's a strange euphemism that I think is from the Victorian <laughs> era of biologists. But mm-hmm. when you when anim, when frogs are recruiting, they're finding mates and having babies. <laughs> that's true.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah.
3: You're listening to Creature Conference on MPB Think Radio today, visiting with John Toopey from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service talking about the dusky gopher frog. But if you have a frog question in general, I think John might be able to help us. Give us a give us a chance. You can always send us an email as well to animals at MPBonline dot org. So John, I think you mentioned that uh, the the dusky gopher frog is hard to find and it is endangered. So it's exciting that you were involved in finding a new breeding population.
0: Oh yeah. Um during my work down there when I was uh in charge of monitoring, um, you know, one one of the things like you said, the, the frog is really secretive, very hard to find. Um and, and when they're in the ponds, they do call. They make a vocalization that's that's very distinguishable and easy to hear, um and, and it is really the best way to determine whether they're present or not, um, unless you have some, some Established other uh, survey methods. So one of my responsibilities was to kind of travel around the area of Glens Pond where there's some other ponds that the Forest Service had worked on to try and improve and make suitable for gopher frogs. And whenever uh, the frog was, uh, the gopher frog was calling at Glens, I would I'd travel around to the, uh, these other ponds and just listen for a couple minutes to see just by chance, maybe they found these ponds on their own. And uh, one night they happened to be at, at – just so happened to be at one of these ponds. One of them was called Pony Ranch Pond. It was about 1.2 kilometers southeast of Glens, And so that's what happened. Those frogs from Glens Pond found that pond on its own, decided – it looked pretty good they thought it you know was a good site for breeding and they started calling and you know i couldn't tell you how excited i was just to hear that initially i was jumping up and down <laughs> i made recordings on my phone i sent them to everybody i could find and and just i mean it was it was a big moment you know, to know that these frogs weren't just at one pond anymore, even if it was just nearby. And it was also a good, a great um, a testament to the work the Forest Service had done. You know, they took our suggestions and the findings that we uh, extracted from our research and they applied it to that pond and, and the work that they did. and And it came out just right. You know the frogs. I mean, we had plans to maybe move frogs there in the future, but they beat us to it. You know, they mm-hmm. they found that fond, that pond on their own, and and they were just as excited as we were. So uh,
3: you mentioned vocalizing, and I believe we have some sounds to play. Yeah, uh, let's go ahead and play this first one.
0: Yeah, so that's a. Go for frog call it's kind of a rolling snore <laughs> um it lasts for about three seconds um but that's a single fr- that's a single male calling all alone you can barely hear anything else the really cool thing about it is this is this is just heard You know, by ear, you know, if you walk up to a pond, you might hear this. The other cool thing about gopher frogs is they actually call underwater sometimes. Mm. We're not sure exactly why they do it. We have some theories, but we've actually now have the technology to record them calling underwater. And that's what the second recording is. I just thought it would be neat to listen to the difference. All right. So that's two gopher frogs calling underwater simultaneously. One's going first, and then there's a second one right there. You can also hear, that's a leopard frog. (laughs) (laughs) He snuck in there somehow. (laughs) Yeah. So oftentimes they do call together or compete to call in the same pond at the same time. And leopard frogs also will call underwater. And so you can kind of hear the differences there. Um, sometimes you can walk up to a pond and not hear anything aerially, but underneath the water, they're doing that. And I think that's pretty neat. And so that, that's just them isolated somewhat. Um, I th- the next recording will be kind of more of a typical environment scenario where. They're calling and competing with other species of frogs at the same time.
3: All right, we're going to hold that till after the break. But the, my quick observation was the one underwater, the, the tempo seemed much quicker. Yeah. Is that due to being
0: underwater? Maybe just a different condition, a different thing that they're communicating? Um, a lot of times their tempo and even their tone will be dictated by the temperature of the water or the temperature of the air. Um, when it's warmer, they tend to call a little quicker and higher pitched. When it's colder, they call a little slower and a little lower. Um, but it always kind of has that same trill pattern or that snore pattern for the same amount of relatively the same amount of time it's it's very rhythmic that's for sure so
3: you're listening to creature comforts on mpb think radio kevin farrell here with dr troy major veterinarian at the animal medical center in jackson libby hartfield retired director of the mississippi museum of natural science and our guest for the hour is john toopey from the u.s fish and wildlife service if you missed any of today's show you can always subscribe to the podcast using your preferred podcasting app Or download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone. Then you get to listen to all the local MPB Think Radio programs on your schedule. As uh, we mentioned, we've got a caller on the line, so we say good morning to Cynthia. Cynthia, you're on the air with us. Go ahead.
2: Yes, sir. Good morning. I've just got to know if it's true that when a frog pees on you, you get
0: warts. (laughs) (laughs) I get that question a lot. And, um, I, I'm happy to say that you actually will not get warts if a frog pees on you or a toad. Um, I, I think that I'm not sure where that was first thought of. Um, a lot of frogs do have warts themselves, uh, including the dusky gopher frog and, um, most toad species. Um, but it's a part of their anatomy. It's part of their, their skin, um, and and no, they they can't actually transfer anything to you or, or transmit anything to you that would cause a wart. Usually, when they pee on you, that's that's probably ninety nine point nine percent water, um, and, and it's a defense mechanism that they're hoping that when they pee on you, it startles you and you release them. <laughs> I probably nine I times out think- of ten that would work. <laughs> Go ahead, Cynthia. <laughs>
2: Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Y'all have a blessed
3: day. All right. Thanks for your call. Uh, so we were go playing a little bit of the uh, the calls of the, the dusky gopher frog. And do we understand what the different things that
0: they are trying to communicate to each other are? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, for the dusky gopher frog, um, it's the males calling. And they're call- usually calling from a wetland or a pond. And they're trying to attract a mate, the female, trying to get them uh I, more or less, they're trying to say, hey, this is a great place for you to lay your eggs. Um, and I'm the biggest and strongest male out there. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to, you know, and and that's what they're trying to telegraph to those females. Um, there are other frog species that are have more. Complex vocalizations and different types for different situations, like tree frogs, that'll uh, have a vocalization for territory, uh, territorial disputes, or, or trying to uh, fight off others. Uh, southern toads uh, will sometimes do that too, or they'll literally, you know, be calling in each other's faces, uh, trying to fight over a log or, or another spot in the in a pond or a wetland that that they think is is prime. So, yeah, it's, it's the males that make the vocalizations.
3: So I, I often wonder if, because that's true of a lot of animals that we talk about, and I often wonder if when the female gets to where the male is, they look him over and it's like, ah, I don't think so.
4: <laughs> you weren't I, as good as you sounded. That's right. Huh?
3: And
0: <laughs> bark is worse yeah, than its bite.
4: Yeah. But that is the first stage of recruitment. That's, that's He's right. he got to recruit a mate. Yeah.
0: That's yeah. right. Yeah. And all of them will kind of have slightly different calls. And so, yeah, whatever the female is trying to figure out there, uh, you know, whether you're the fittest or, you know, you're the best match for me, I, th- I think. Yeah, that there is some decision that that occurs there.
3: Uh, And so I think the before the break, I think the ones that we played were individual frogs. And Java's telling me, I think we have a a group call. Let's listen to that. Mm -hmm.
0: We've got a lot going on in this one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this this is somewhat of a I'd say a, a late late winter early spring time where you can hear the gopher frog calling in there, but you can also hear gray tree Cope's gray tree frog, um, which is typically a winter breeder. You can hear um, the leopard frog, the the kind of the rough rash kind of chuckling. Um, you can also hear cricket frogs in there, which. Kind of call year round, but they're classified as a summer breeder.
1: Do,
3: do, you, do we know where that was recorded from? Because, like I said, there seems like an awful lot of that yeah. going on in that
0: one little clip. That that most likely is Glen's Pond, although I, you rarely hear gray tree frogs at Glen's Pond, so that could be a, a nearby pond in Jackson County uh, called Mike's Pond. Um, where there used to be a natural population, but they kind of blinked out. Um, but we we relocated some frogs there afterwards, and and because we we determined it still was a suitable place. Um, but yeah that 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 would be kind of a typical situation, you know. D- Rarely do you just hear a gopher frog calling, you know, you would hear them kind of competing with other species in a pond.
3: Well, but that's an interesting point too, because now we've determined that, okay, I'm trying to convince the the female that I'm the biggest, baddest one around, but now I've also got to outcompete over this other frog that's not interested in my species anyway. So yeah. that seems like that's, that's a pretty tough order,
0: I guess, sometimes. Yeah. And that might be one of the reasons they might call underwater sometimes. Um, also, you know, we found that Each species kind of occupies a audio niche in terms of um, frequency. And so a lot of, you know, like the leopard frog is pretty close in that frequency with the gopher frog. But when you look at it, unlike, you know, an actual visualization of that, um, you can really see the difference in the pattern and also the interval of the call. Um, And so you can, it, it really... Is neat to look at that, you know, when you put it up on, on a. I've, I'm not sure what it's called, like a spectrograph or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, these different niches in that in that range of frequencies, where you know, like the high pitch stuff is is hap- is occurring, and and also you you'll notice a lot of times that there's pauses or there's breaks in those calls, and there's a species that's literally trying to slip in their their call before <laughs> another one picks up and, it, and it's really like this choreography almost
3: well, you know that's interesting because it was cacophonous, but it didn't. It, it it was sort of I don't know. Harmonic is not the right word, but it seems like it all fit together, and that is interesting too. That you know, I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Up well, here's my turn to jump in. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and I would imagine too that the females are tuned into. You were talking about the different frequencies. So the, obviously, the female frog is going to know much better than a
0: human that that's my guy. Yeah, that's what we think. We think that they're kind of fine tuned. To pick up that that call at that frequency and that interval and and that pattern even. Um yeah, that's what we think. And and it is, it really is uncanny how they find each other, you know, and, and acres and acres of habitat, you know, migrating into these ponds. They can I mean, they can literally hear these calls before they make it to the ponds. Mm. So the frogs are letting them know that the conditions are right almost.
3: Uh, let's go back to the phone lines starting in pedal again. Bobby has called in today. Good morning, Bobby. You're on the air with us. Go ahead.
2: Uh, I want to change it so that you can ask a bird question. Is that okay? Sure. Go ahead. Okay. I feed uh, birds in the backyard. I have hanging feeders, and I broadcast about a quarter of uh, black oil sunflower seeds over the ground like feeding chickens every day, and I've had it many so sold, more than 30 morning doves, cardinals, jays, about everything. Coming there to eat, and then the brown head cowbird showed up, and then another one, and another one. The only thing is the ugliest critter that ever lived, and it's <laughs> that's where now that about the only thing I'm feeding is is the cowbird. And I need to know how to get rid of them, um, know
4: them. Yeah, you know, that's this morning. My daughter said, I'm sitting there watching a pair of cowbirds in your yard, brownhead." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually am very intrigued by their sounds. I love the sounds they make. It sounds kind of like gurgling water. And um, when I get very many of them, I do stop feeding, and that's hard to do, isn't it? And uh, kind of your defense against them is look at your bird boxes, and if the holes are bigger than is needed you can look up each species like if you've got chickadees nesting look up chickadee hole and what well, it's about an inch and a half i think but uh if the if the if the hole uh-huh. of your bird box is too big those brown headed cowbirds will go in there and uh-huh. lay their own eggs And their babies can push the other babies out, and so they'll proliferate in your habitat. And that's what they're looking for is some easy marks. They're looking for some nests. They don't know how to make a nest, I guess, in their defense. Um, Evolution or whatever did not give them that ability. They know how to take advantage of other other birds' nests. So that's what they do. But, um, you know, you're not supposed to go out there and kill Mm -hmm. them. They are part of the... Environment too, and uh, it's thought that in some ways the target species get stronger by being um, having to fight off this threat. But that's the only way that I know of that you can help them is you can quit feeding the cowbird if they're the only one around. You can harass them a little, run them off if you want, and uh, but keep them out of your bird boxes with any of the the, the nesters that you want to encourage.
2: I don't have any boxes at all other than the bluebird box way away from there, but um, uh-huh. it's just the feed. And, of course, from what I've read is they are one of the major reasons for the decline of uh, songbirds, and I don't like that because I know that songbirds are declining in my backyard. Yep, you're uh, exactly you right. You're not yeah. supposed to kill them, even, even the damage that they're doing. Uh, you're still not supposed
4: to kill them, uh, cowbird you're still not supposed to kill them because they are a natural bird. And the way the laws were set up originally, that's, you know, like back in, gosh. We started having bird um, protection laws back in the 1880s, and I don't think they knew any different at all. But um, a, a native birds are all protected. We're not supposed well, to, to just that, kill a native bird.
2: It would to be very, very destructive.
4: And yeah and of
2: course, I've never heard the sound you're talking about, which I don't hear that well anyway,
4: but um, yeah, I, that, I just, yeah, they're just so ugly, and they've just taken over. I've had so many birds and now I don't, yeah. except for them I you know, it's, know it tends to be too when we get an overabundance of anything like that that's then it's not yeah. it it's not special to us, I guess, so I'm very sorry that you've got that many of them now. Um, do you have a lot of open area? They like, they love a mowed yard. A brown-headed cowbird loves a, a big mowed area. That's, that's their that's target. A There's
2: a pasture right next door, and of course, the big yard. Yeah, and, uh,
4: they. And, you you know, know what they use the other What they were known for when they were first discovered on this continent is they moved with the buffalo herds, and that's the theory of why they did not make nests they moved and and migrated along with the well i don't know if you call it it was not maybe a migration but they they moved with um buffalo herds as they moved and so they would leave eggs along the way when the buffalo left they took up with cows their numbers have greatly decreased from what the high was at the time when they were associated with the with the um, buffalo, I imagine, but now they they tend to associate with cow lots or, you know, any kind of a. But they do like a a, a grass, and they particularly love mowed grass. My husband tries to leave most of our kind of pastureish-looking land unmowed or as unmowed as much as possible because he feels like that cuts down on the number of of cowbirds, but. That's where they like to feed is on those grass seeds. But obviously, they're, they've are they learned to to like your um, black oil sunflower seeds. I'm sorry. And you might do some more reading online. They're, you know, I'm not saying I know everything about it.
3: All right, uh, Bobby, thanks for your call. And in, in defense of the brown-headed cowboard, I pulled it up on my phone, and I like the little brown head, and this one is kind of a bright blue. So I don't know. I, they're not that bad-looking to me, I guess. Mm. I don't know. Uh, But like I say, the the brown head is certainly very distinctive. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. Our guest today is John Toopey from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. You can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Rachel is on the line from Eupora and up next. Go ahead, Rachel. You're on the air with us.
2: Good morning. So, uh, John, you said that the uh, gopher frog has warts. Uh, Are they actually warts? Or is this
0: the texture of their skin? Yeah, I, I think it's mainly just a description. Um, but basically, what they are raised bumps, um, and they can be in circular or oval patterns. Um, and there's, you know, often, oftentimes they're associated with uh, secretions that are – that come out of the skin, which is kind of like a, a toxic type uh, chemical and, and that's a defensive mechanism. Um, you know, it, it tastes bad to predators. It's sticky um, and again, it's – you know, if something picks it up or uh, captures it in its mouth, they'll secrete that toxin and um, it in hopes that the, the predator will release them. Um, but yes, uh, in, in you know field guides and and books, uh, the the bumps, the elevated, raised bumps on on the backs and skins of uh, frogs are are described as warts. Um, but I don't think you know it's the same thing that that humans get.
3: All right, to Rachel, thanks for your call this morning. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Visiting today with John Toopey from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, so, John, you said that they're endangered. Tell us about maybe some of the biggest threat to gopher frogs in Mississippi, and then what uh, what you can do
0: to uh, try to protect them. Um, mainly, it's it's development and the effects of. Associated development, so you know, clearing land or modifying the land to the point where gopher frogs can no longer inhabit it, uh, is is the big one. It's all you know. It's also development in the way of fragmentation, um, creating fragments or uh, creating barriers in between suitable habitat that disrupts their need. Uh, their needs because they need both uplands, dry uplands, where they live for most of their adult lives, and they also need these ephemeral wetlands. And, and so they need to migrate back and forth unobstructed. Um, and, and so, you know, the development of uplands, you know, that usually high and dry areas are popular for building, uh, for road placement, um, that kind of thing. And then these wetlands, uh, you know, were often characterized or thought of as there was something wrong with them because they didn't always hold water all the time. And so a lot of times, you know, uh, farmers or developers would deepen the ponds and create, make them permanent, which attracts fish and other aquatic predators. And, And that importance to the gopher frog, you know, that's their, their whole life strategy or breeding strategy is to lay their eggs and allow their tadpoles to grow and develop in these fishless or less predator dense ponds. Um, So, you know, they try and get there and lay their eggs as quickly as these ponds fill up. And, and, you know, that, that usually is devoid of, of predators. And, And so when you deepen or make these ponds permanent, you're kind of creating a situation where they can't, their, their, lar- their tadpoles can't metamorphose and grow successfully and, and survive. So, you know, development and, and fragmentation are the big ones. Fragmentation also makes it harder to prescribe fire or allow fire to burn naturally, which was a natural component of the longleaf pine ecosystem. Lightning strikes historically would... St- ignite fires and those fires would burn and clean up the the hardwoods and the shrubs and also um, stimulate herbaceous vegetation growth in the understory. And that was important for burrow creators in the uplands, like gopher tortoises, uh, ma- small mammals like mice and, and gophers. And uh, they created these underground tunnels and structures, which the gopher frog would use. Um, they can't dig themselves, the frog per se, but they can repurpose, um, you know, uh, find an off channel in a gopher tortoise burrow that they can hide in or use a mammal burrow or tunnel that the mammal isn't using anymore. And they're very, very closely, especially in Mississippi, associated with pine stumps, uh, pine stumps that either rot out naturally or burn. All those chambers, underground chambers that are left behind are the perfect size for gopher frogs to use. And that's what we see them use almost exclusively at Glen's Pond. Um, and, you know, the sister species in the eastern Southeastern U.S., uh, they're more closely tied to gopher tortoises. We think the dusky probably used them more frequently in the past, but because of the subsequent declines of the gopher tortoise in Mississippi, um, you know, they're less associated. They can't use those gopher tortoise burrows as much because they're just more rare on the landscape.
3: Um, So we talk about how interconnected the ecosystem is on the show a lot. If you would just spend a couple of minutes about, you know, the frogs,
0: spot in that whole thing, in in the ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the gopher tortoise is what's considered a keystone species. They're considered that because the burrows they create are used by over 300 different species from invertebrates to amphibians, to snakes, to birds even. Um, And, and all of these species that are found in the longleaf pine system are closely tied to that keystone species. The gopher frog is unique in the fact that they use both uplands and wetlands in these longleaf pine landscapes. And so they can be an indicator of habitat quality for both uplands and wetlands. Now, when I mentioned fire, the fires that would occur not only burn through the uplands, they also burn through these temporary, ephemeral wetlands when they were dry, and and that fire helped also keep those areas clear of uh, shading vegetation like. Large trees or shrubs, and that's important because there's a thermal component to the development of the tadpoles. The warmer and the more sunny it is, uh, creates vegetation and structure that they can graze on and hide in. Um, but it also speeds up their development for metamorphosis. When these ponds become too fire suppressed and shaded in, the the frogs, the tadpoles can't grow as fast and develop as quickly, and and that's a disadvantage to them compared to other species of of frog that can actually, their tadpoles can actually withstand that. So um, the fire is really important. It's an indication that the habitat is healthy, both in the wetlands and in the uplands.
3: All right, that's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funding provided in part by contributions from listeners. To hear today's show or a previous show, one way to find it is to go to creaturecomforts.mpbonline.org. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Jay White. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest John Toopey, I'm Kevin Farrell. Inviting you to stay tuned. Up next, it's AutoCorrect. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts,
0: heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.